If you like sports talk with absolutely no sports talk, then welcome to the latest episode of the Just Not Sports podcast. This is the show where a couple guys who work in sports talk to the people who play and cover sports about anything they like, just not sports. Today, we're going to talk to IndyCar driver Pippa Mann about her growing love of American football and discovering the sport after a life overseas. And we will also go deep with Boys Among Men author Jonathan Abrams about the pop cultural impact of the prep to pro generation of NBA superstars. And we'll see if he agrees with former Just Not Sports guest and Grantland writer Shea Serrano that Kobe Bryant was a worse rapper than John Cena. I'm your co-host, Brad Burke. I'm a sports marketer in Chicago. And joining me on the phone right now, a fresh-faced sports media strategist who has worked for the University of Colorado, the Green Bay Packers, and many global sports brands. It's Adam Willard. Adam. How fresh is your face? Well, uh, I just had a birthday, so I'm not feeling as fresh, but I'm taking some measures to turn back the clock. I am eating healthier, a lot of steamed vegetables and brown rice, lean okay. proteins, Brad. You know that's important. I also uh, am in the process of building a standing desk. I think I will be happy, happier and healthier um, with these lifestyle changes. Change from the early days in Chicago where Brad and I would down a bottle of Jack Daniels on a Friday night. Speak for yourself, man. Um, uh, come on. No, I just meant that's not the early days. That's like every day. Oh, God. What about the standing desk do you think is going to help? There's a few different things about the standing desk. So apparently... Um, standing for an entire workday is the equivalent to running a mile, so you're burning calories. Um, sitting is the new smoking. Um, is a, a line I've, ho- I've heard thrown about quite a bit. If you're sitting for a great deal of time um, due to a number of factors, it can be detrimental to your body in a way that smoking cigarettes is. Uh, and then I think just general... Um, just general health and posture, yes, will be improved. I often go from work right to my martial arts class, and you do feel hunched over after sitting in the desk. I just feel like standing is going to help everything. Not with us this week, Gareth Hughes, our Emmy-winning television producer, who is lost somewhere recovering from March Madness. So in his stead, joining us, our producer, our editor, and this week on a mic, Mr. Joe Reed. Joe, how are you? I am doing great, Brad. Spring has sprung here in Chicago, and that makes me happy. It was snowing like three days ago, man. That's exactly what I said. <laughs> Spring in Chicago, baby. It's not. It's not a. It's not a snow that's like gonna pack on your car. It's more of a snow that's just gonna like get in your eyes as you're like walking to the train. Yeah, and just ruin your day. Yeah, great. So we got a packed show, and as you know. We start every episode by inviting on future guests. We, uh, we don't just reach out to them. We monitor the interwebs, see who's talking about an interest off the field, and therefore they're legally obligated to join us on the show after we invite them. We call this process slamming the hammer. Adam, who do you want to slam the hammer to? Uh, you might as well aim high on are these hammers, right? So I'm going to go 
with Manny Pacquiao. Um, not only is he uh, one time clearly the best pound for pound fighter in the world, he is also a Filipino senator um, and musician. So, uh, oh, and actor. So if, again, a guy with a number of topics that he could address. He's also been in talks with Sylvester Stallone to star in his, some of his upcoming movies. I just feel like the topics are endless. Is it's is it going to be a Rocky movie? Uh, I don't know. I have a feeling probably not. It's more of like an Expendables type movie, which is tends to cram as many uh, current and past stars into them, their movies as possible, but yet are. Uh, guilty pleasure watches regardless i don't see him in the expendables like i just i can't i can't imagine him next to like dolph lundgren and all those like beefed up roided monsters what are you saying what do you mean they're that they're roided up do you have evidence to produce that says these guys are on steroids maybe they just all have great genetics that make their veins pop out maybe they all use standing desks (laughs) they're full circle again brad you always do it buddy <laughs> uh, Joe, you do not have a hammer this week. What's the first athlete you can think of off the top of your head? Go. Oh God! Now Adam's got me on like a fighter MMA kick. I don't know, Conor McGregor. Conor, we'll see you on the show. <laughs> and my hammer, getting right to it. NBA Hall of Famer, excuse me, basketball Hall of Famer. I forget the basketball Hall of Fame is college and pro. It's the basketball Hall of Famer, Bill Walton. He's got a new book out. It's called Back from the Dead. And I think what is going to make it so interesting is a lot of the themes I think he's going to talk about are directly related to his NBA career, but in a way that goes off the court. So the Dead reference is clearly the reference to the fact that he spent a lot of his career touring around with the Grateful Dead, and they were certainly a huge influence on his playing style, on the look that he brought to the game um, during an era when NBA players were breaking out of the clean cut mode and and bringing their own personal flair uh, to the way that they, you know, they dressed and the way they even played. And then he talks a lot about his his love of biking. So I have worked with the Challenged Athletes Foundation, which provides uh, equipment and sometimes even uh, artificial limbs to athletes who have physical disabilities. Bill Walton uh, rides his bike with them, participates in a lot of fundraisers with them. He is a really inspiring presence with that group. Uh, I've seen him there. I've seen how people respond to him. People don't realize some of these athletes who have dozens of surgeries have difficulties even walking around, moving around. So Bill is someone who, who famously says that you know every day that he can get up and walk to his bike and go on a bike ride, he raises his hands in the air and looks at the sky and just says, I get to ride my bike today. And I just think those are the types of stories that you're going to probably find in the book. And those are the types of stories I want to break down with him on just not sports. So Bill Walton back from the dead and into our studio. Let's do this thing. Bill Walton toured with the grateful dead. Bill Walton played bass with the grateful dead from 1981 to 1994. Man. Joe, I made that whole thing up about him playing in the band. Like I'm just shocked. You would not have known that's BS. You, (laughs) <laughs> you got me too. I thought maybe he did play with the band at one point. I had no idea. I was genuinely asking. I have no idea his connection to the Grateful Dead. Do you understand okay. that the Grateful Dead is a band, Joe? You know that? Yeah, I do. I uh, I remember when they came to Chicago last year. It was there were a lot of what do you call them? 
Deadheads? You call Grateful Dead fans juggaloos. You should you should call them juggaloos when you see them. Do you know what you call Jimmy Buffett fans, Joe? Um, no, I I do not know. Mm, disappointing. You call them parrot heads, right? That's right, parrot heads. Deadheads, parrot heads, juggaloos, fish. Gareth, our other co-host, was huge into fish and like collected live tapes. And in an era when the only way to trade music online was to like go to it's <laughs> not even online it was like to go to message like message boards in the back of like classified ad sections and find people looking for certain shows and then like record them a tape of a show and then, <laughs> and then send it to them in the mail <laughs> gareth did this forever gareth when you're back on the show after your arrest let's definitely break down your fish fandom is there a way i, I know we're getting a little off topic now but is there a way to even get music illegally anymore um, it seems like the, the it seems like the man has really done a good job of shutting people out of that. Yeah, I wonder if it's just been sort of combated by the incredible ease with which you can get it now. If you make it easy enough to purchase, people won't want to steal it. They'll just pay pay for it. Um, but I don't know. Don't ask me. I get all my entertainment from LimeWire. Oh, so there are legal ways. Okay. <laughs> That explains why our show sounds so buggy. My computer's just all pop-ups all the time. <laughs> anyway, if you've got someone we should talk to, email us, justnotsports at gmail.com or tweet us at justnotsports. We've got two interviews coming your way. We're going to start off with IndyCar racer Pippa Mann, who, upon moving here from the British Isles, has grown very fond of football. And then we're going to follow that up with an interview with former Grantland writer and current author, Jonathan Abrams to break down his new book all about the generation of NBA superstars that jumped straight from high school to the pros. You've probably heard Jonathan talk about the subject matter a few times by now on other shows, but I just want to say we're going to take the conversation into other areas that we've talked about on this show, not just their pop cultural contributions, rap albums, movies, uh, branding, fashion lines, but also uh, how some of the guys who didn't make it you know, found purpose in life beyond sports, a topic we've talked about a number of times before. So we are to take a quick break. When we come back, Pippa Man breaking down hand egg. This May, all eyes will be on IndyCar for the 100th running of the Indianapolis 500. And one driver who hopes to be sipping milk in victory lane is Pippa Mann, a talented IndyCar driver who has competed on the circuit for the past few years. But when she's not racing, you might catch Pippa watching another sport, specifically football. Today, we're going to go deep about getting to know the sport from overseas, her favorite teams, and of course, what she calls it. So Pippa, when we were talking... Uh, about what to talk about, and we, and we landed on American football. You called it something in your email that made me laugh out loud. Can you tell our, <laughs> tell our listeners what you described it as? So to set the stage really quickly, I'm an English girl, hopefully, as you guys can tell by my accent. <laughs> yes. So the football I grew up watching is rather different to American football, and the football I grew up watching involves, you know, a foot and a ball to make things happen. Um, while I've become a very big fan of American football over the past few years and started to understand it, hand egg seems a much more fitting title for it than football. 
most of the time. Yes, hand egg. Yeah, hand egg. I love it. I laughed out loud when I when I um, when I saw that. Um, when you came over, uh, what was your knowledge of American football? Like, how much had you actually heard about it um, in in England before you came to the states? Um, not very much at all. Yeah. <laughs> so my first impression of American football is, what is this? This is kind of like a version of rugby, but they don't right. run very far or for very long, <laughs> and they wear a lot more protection. And hmm, and I'm, I'm not. It took me a long time to kind of to understand it and you know get it and start to become a fan of it and the intricacies of the game because at first you know I was um. I was pretty confused and not that into it, to be honest with you. Yeah, I've seen that a lot, like where people, I think they cite the lack of action. You know, I think if you watch soccer or you watch rugby, it's a fluid, those are fluid games that the action almost never stops. Football, American football is is just so start and stop that a lot of people that I've met from overseas are like, I couldn't really wrap my head around why it was so slow and boring. And the funny thing is, is my American husband thinks the exactly the same thing about soccer. <laughs> he can't wrap his head around how, you know, soccer is kind of to him. It's pretty slow and boring because in American football, almost every play means something right. once you start to understand the game. So you have all of these big plays kind of continuously that, you know, every time you get a first down, it really means something. When you're in that third down, every time it's a tense situation. Right. There are very few plays that don't mean much in American football. They sort of, you know, that they've ramped up the tension as much as possible for almost every play. Whereas I think in soccer and in rugby, most of the plays don't have that same tension to them. There's a lot of sort of fluidity to the game, but some of it is just the ball being moved around and progression being made. But, you know, the play is not the do or die play for the game a lot of the time. Whereas in American football, you should be feel it's a do or die play for the game almost, you know, constantly if it's a close game. Yeah, it is a sport that's been sort of manufactured and built for television. You know, you have those it, it like you said, it's the it's the it's the action between the action that you get all geared up for and then you have this big catharsis. But that's a very American trait anyway. We want we like everything big and in your face and uh, giving us plenty of time to go to the bathroom or drink a beer in between. And show the Super Bowl commercials because, you know, that's become an institution all by itself in this country. (laughs) I know. Hey, you're talking to people who work in sports marketing, so we're very familiar with all of that process. (laughs) So let me ask. So you came over, I believe you came overseas in or over to the the United States. I believe you came over to the United States in 2009, 2010, that that time range. Is that correct? Um, Start of 09. Yes, that's correct. So you moved to Indianapolis. What was your first encounter with? the Colts, um, or American football in general? I'm guessing it's the Colts. Um, it, it was the Colts, but it actually wasn't um, going to a game. We were down at uh, Miami Speedway for a test, and the Super Bowl was um, right. playing. I can't remember if it was the Super Bowl or the last qualifying game for the Super Bowl, and I can't even tell you if the Colts, were they in the Super Bowl in 09? Yes. So in, in, it, was, it would have been January of 2010, so right after that 09 season, and the game was in Miami, they lost to the Saints, I believe. So all of the team was sort of, we had to go for a restaurant for dinner before the test where all of the team could watch the game at the bar. And I kind of, I still really didn't understand it at that point and hadn't even made that big of an effort to understand it at that mm-hmm. point. 
Um, but, but the more I sort of watched and learned, the more I became interested in it. And those were good Colts teams. I mean, Peyton Manning had to be, did he just quickly become your favorite player as you gravitated toward that team or no? That's a really interesting question. It's actually quite tricky to answer. Um, the answer is sort of yes, but not for the reasons you'd think. Okay. Not because he was the quarterback or because he was the best-known player, um, but it was more living in Indianapolis. And as I became more aware of it, starting to be aware of the amount he was doing in the community. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And so that, that was kind of why, you know, I, I started to really root for him. Um, I started to watch it because I wanted to have, you know, a common interest with the guys who were working on my car. And that's how I started watching and wanted to understand it so I could have conversations, have the common interest and understand this sport that's so big in my new home country. But the fandom of Peyton Manning didn't come from the fact that he was, a, he was the quarterback. It came from all of these stories that I started to hear about him, about what Peyton Manning, the person, had actually done. He had a unique... Um, I've worked with Peyton a number of times uh, through various um, clients of mine that, that do business with him, and, and he has a very interesting dynamic with the city of Indianapolis. To your point, he was very involved, and he was the face of that franchise for so long. What was it like for the fan base to see him leave um, and then to watch him have, you know, I guess, you know, this, this level of success closing out his career in Denver with another Super Bowl? You know, I think it was very, very hard for the fan base to see him leave. And I think the fact that you see a lot of fans, or saw, I should say, a lot of fans walking around with the split orange and blue jerseys for a long time in Indianapolis after he left told the story. But I think Indianapolis also realizes that to have another, you know, such a talented guy, such as Andrew Luck, to be the future of your team is a really incredible opportunity for the Indianapolis Colts. So I think the fans understand. Um, for me personally, I was so happy to see Peyton have the fairy tale ending to his career with the Broncos. And, you know, even if it was a Peyton Manning who was struggling to do some of the stuff that he used to be able to do with ease, and, you know, maybe he wasn't playing at his best. But to see him and that Broncos team be able to win the Super Bowl this year and for Peyton to end his career on that fairy tale ending, personally, I thought that was something just so special to see. And I think a lot of the city of Indianapolis felt the same way. Yeah, I'm sure. I, I'm sure there were a lot of people there really rooting for him. Um, although I, I will say, as, as a fan of another team that's not the Colts, I think it's totally unfair how you guys went from 15 years of Peyton Manning to another 15 years of Andrew Luck <laughs> without having like five bad years in between. So, oh well. Um, well, you know, if we're going to have 15 good years of Andrew Luck, we need to learn how to protect the kid better. Uh, th- that is true. That is true. That, so I was going to ask you, what is your take on... What is your take on the team right now? What do you want to see them do this offseason? You know, the, here's the thing. Obviously, I, you know, I'm in professional sports myself, and I put myself out there for all sorts of other people to pass comments on. And it's so much easier from the outside to do that than it is from the inside. But I think when you look at the really tough season the Indianapolis Colts had last year, and you got Andrew Luck injured, and then you had Hasselbeck try to step in, and he did a great job at first, and then you got him injured, and then you had the third-string quarterback step in, and then he got injured. Right. It's like, okay, so but there's something of a pattern emerging here. Um, the, from an outsider standpoint looking in, 
you just feel like that's something you really want to see fixed because you want Andrew Luck to be healthy and to be able to play for this team for a long time. So, you know, the, the armchair quarter, the armchair uh, manager's perspective, who knows nothing really about American football at all, <laughs> and just enough to be a little bit dangerous is that, you know, my two cents is I, I want to see our quarterbacks better protected. How do you, how do you follow the sport um, being a professional athlete yourself? You mentioned, you know, you, you are the subject of speculation and, and, and <laughs> criticism and, and people telling you how to run your career. Does it give you a level of empathy for the athletes that maybe doesn't exist with regular fans? Or are you able to compartmentalize that and just watch it as a complete uh, regular fan? You know, I, I think it really does give me a level of empathy. Um, you know, I, I am just as disappointed as the other fans are when there's a bad game. But I don't sit there calling the team or the players or the coaches or the managers' names when they have a bad game. Right. Um, because I have a lot of empathy for what those guys are going through. Because every time you go out there, whether it's to drive a racing car in a race or whether it's to play an American football game or any kind of sport, anything – where you're putting yourself out there with your heart and soul, it is gut-wrenching mm-hmm. to have a bad game. It is gut-wrenching to lose. It, it, it's the most awful experience. And then you sort of you come in and you pile these multitudes of criticisms on top of people. So and I think it does give me a different perspective, and I think it does make me watch things in a different way. And, you know, admittedly, occasionally to my husband sitting next to me, I'll say to him, oh, you know, I wish, you know, so-and-so had done that, or, you know, I, that was a rough drop. Or, and I think that's normal, but that's very different to kind of to taking to some kind of public place right? to throw down on people who are out there, you know, putting their heart and soul into this and giving it everything they've got and doing the very best they can. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it does give me a different perspective, actually. So with that said, though, you still hate the Patriots, don't you? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have to. I am. Um, I actually. Uh, sorry, funny story. As one of the places where I work, the where I work outside of racing, I work at several performance driving schools, and we actually had a guy come through who was wearing a uh, Patriots cap. And I tried to give him a little bit of a hard time about the slate gate yeah. in Jeff. And he shut me down so quickly, I was actually worried about keeping my job at the end of the day. So that sort of goes both ways. Yeah, so Colts fans, I think of all the... Colts fans and Ravens fans are the ones that are the sorest about deflate gate. Um, even though, I gotta say, I, I don't believe that the, the, the deflation of the ball could have helped you guys in that game a couple years ago where you're down 30 points at <laughs> halftime. Um, but what what is yeah. your per, what is, quickly onwards. Right. What is your perception of, of Deflategate, how the media covered it, and as a fan of the team that was on the wrong end of it, um, how did you how did you process all of the circus that that situation became? You know that that's a really great question. Um, I didn't take any of it too seriously. And from the fact that I'm joking about it now, I think you can tell yeah. that, you know, that I still don't take it. Yeah, you know, cheating is terrible. Um, but in all of sports, people are always trying to figure out how to get an advantage. Yep. A small advantage, a big advantage, you know, that there's always somebody trying to figure out how to get an advantage. Now, is there some stuff that I think could have been handled differently by the media, by both teams? By the, Yeah, sure. 
whatever. Um, is it still a funny punchline a couple of years later? To, to me as a Colts fan, it is. Um, <laughs> you know, however, you're right. You bring up how much we were losing by, and you quickly want to move swiftly on. So, yeah, right. You know, it's, um, it, it's just one of those things. Well, so as a professional athlete, do you have more compassion for the Patriots potentially getting an advantage? Or are you someone that's like, hey, don't break the rules because you wouldn't want someone shaving, um, you know, shaving weight or, or, you know, off their off their car or trying to get a, a, an extra advantage over you. You know, it, it really does go both ways. You don't want to see people breaking the rules. But to your point, how much did it actually change? That, that's the big thing. Um, right. However, you know, as racists, that's also an argument we hear and that can be used uh, sort of, you know, on us many times as well. So that that's a really, truly tough one to offer a genuine perspective of. My personal perspective is I always try to play within the limits of the rules that are there. Yep. But obviously, if there's a gray area as an athlete and you don't look at the gray area, you're probably not doing your job properly. But I, I always try to play within the limits of the rules that are there. And my team feels fairly strongly about that, too, in racing, Dale Coin Racing. Yep. And they feel fairly strongly that they're always trying to play by the rules that are there, too. Right. Now, you're also a fan of Clemson. So how did you get, how did you get that connection <laughs> with the college game? So um, my husband actually isn't really an NFL fan. Um, I'm actually the bigger NFL fan in our household, which yep. is really funny given he's American and I'm English. Uh, but my husband is a big college football fan. Now, to me, the American college football, basketball, any college sports fandom is a little weird. Um, <laughs> I because, agree. You know, in England, we just kind of scratch our heads and go, but yeah, uh, why? Because they're not even professionals. Yeah, they're kids. <laughs> and my husband has told me, yeah, has told me so many times, oh, but it's the passion of the games. And I'm like, yeah. And we've gone to college <laughs> games and, you know, but they're okay. I don't enjoy them as much as the NFL games, but that, that's, his thing, and he went to Clemson. And so, you know, uh, last year with um, Deshaun Watson and that team playing the streak they did and making it all the way to the national championship finals, that was huge for my husband. And so we went to Phoenix, and we found ourselves a couple of seats, and we went to see the game. And you know what? I, Clemson did lose that game, but actually standing there next to my husband and watching how hard they played and with the heart and the soul they put into that game. And, you know, they never gave up in that game. Every time they were down, they tried to fight back. And I, I just kind of, I felt really strongly like, okay, you know what? These guys played really well. And all right, husband, I will call myself a Clemson fan on the basis of this game. <laughs> like I'm no longer just here because my husband's here on the basis of, you know, a, a team playing with that much heart that really impressed me well we got a we got a um a fan question from tracy in chicago who wanted to know how much do you hate nick saban for that onside kick in the championship game and how did your husband react <laughs> you know what i don't at all um it's just the way things worked out it was a high pressure situation and a high pressure game and I'm, I'm just going to repeat what I said before. I think the amount of heart right. that, you know, Clemson showed and 
played with throughout the various adversities they face in that game, it made me pretty proud to be there. Yeah. Well, it's, it's okay to hate the Alabama coach, though. I mean, he's he's he, he, you could you could throw. I mean, he he's highly paid. Unlike the kids, you know, he's uh, he's he's getting his getting his uh, getting his stuff. So, what is the perception in 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 England of the NFL? They they are trying so hard to break into um, into your home country. You know, we're, we're playing more games than ever there. Uh, you know, Tottenham building their stadium with an eye for hosting NFL games every year. What is the perception back home for the NFL? And do you think these efforts are working or is it more just sort of an odd attraction and and you don't see a a team being relocated there or, or eight games a year being played there as, as feasible? So, I may be completely wrong with this, but I don't ever see a team being located there simply because the time zone issue is so big, even to the East Coast. And when you get all the way to the West Coast, you know, you're, you're sort of running into real issues there. I think the occasional game, it, it's, you know, a really cool thing to do. But I think to actually have a team located there on a different time to that big of a different time zone to the entire rest of the U.S., and the jet lag that would be involved with that. And, you know, I, I think that's something pretty tough to overcome. However, I'm going to go back to when I first moved to the U.S., I didn't really know much about American football at all. In the years that I have lived here, it's been really funny watching it start to grow in the U.K. And some of my friends in the U.K. who didn't really know about it at the time when I came here are slowly starting to become fans and they think it is entertaining and it is different. Um, but then again, you still have a large portion of the English population who scoffed it as I did when I first moved to the U S <laughs> well, I went to London a few years ago with my wife and we went to a Tottenham, uh, premier league game. And I sort of fell in love with, okay. with, I fell in love with that team. I've been following them, uh, ever since. And we, after we went to the pub down the street, uh, near White Hart lane and got some drinks and met these, these kids, they must've been 18. And they all were talking about how they were that year they were going to pick um, an NFL team, and so we were advising them on who to root for. Of course, I was like, "Just root for the Patriots. Don't <laughs> don't do this to yourself. Don't be like a Bengals fan like me. You know, just just get a good team." Um, so I I hear you when you say that the, the the stature of the sport is growing, and I think being able to access it online or highlights it will help that you know ease the time zone. But uh, you know, it just like you said, I yeah. don't know how the logistics are going to work, and whether the appetite is going to be there for a, a team to be re- relocated. I, I don't know. But it doesn't seem like the NFL is going to slow down their support. They, they just want to go more than ever. Yeah, no, and I think having the, um, the, the games in London is a really good thing, and I think those will continue to be incredibly popular and sell very well. But the thing with that is you've got two teams traveling there to do it, and so the jet lag issue is kind of equal across both teams. Um, I think when you've got, you know, one team almost continuously transversing the Atlantic backwards and forwards and changing time zones on a regular basis, that would take a real toll on the players. Yeah. I, somebody I, I somebody I talked to proposed they should have the team live in New York and just go back and forth uh, for like two or three games at a time or something like that. But I again, I just don't know how that's going to work. But smarter people than me yeah, are working on it. Awesome. <laughs> I could certainly see that that would be smarter, but then you have the issue with the fact that the teams 
not really based there and it's not really practicing there right. um, and it's not really becoming part of the community. So I, I don't know how that works. However, in terms of the exhibition games and things like that, yes, I think that's going very strongly. And what's really interesting, and you were absolutely right when you picked up on this, is it's the younger generation who are really getting interested into NFL. I would say it's people of 35 years and younger mainly who are really showing interest. Right. One of the things I, that I really wanted to ask you about, um, you know, tapping into you as, as a driver, there's so much talk, and I don't want to dwell on the head injury thing with the NFL, so this is not about opening up that can of worms, but there's so much talk about concussions with the NFL and what to do about it. I'm just curious your perspective because you are in a sport where you put your body on the line every time you, you compete. So how do you process the movement toward player safety um, in football as a fan uh, coming from a world where you're all too familiar with the risks that athletes can take? So for me personally, and I'm going to give this a racing perspective for a moment. Of course. In racing, um, studying sort of concussions, making sure drivers don't get back into a car when a concussion is diagnosed, um, and trying to keep track, track of that data and look after us as drivers has become more of a priority over the past 10 years. And when I first moved to the U.S., it was already more of a priority here than it was in Europe at that time. They do a test on us at the start of every year to kind of baseline us. And then, you know, whenever you, you hit the wall in a racing car, you have these ear accelerometers um, that are in your speakers, in your ears, in your radio speakers. And they measure the G-forces at the moment of impact of the hit. And the doctors have all of the historical data. And they know that when you've had an impact above X amount of Gs at your head, they need to test you very closely for concussion symptoms and check up with you later. And the doctors, especially in open wheel racing, but in racing in general, have a very good understanding of the fact that drivers are athletes. We want to compete just like the guys do in the other sports. And if we think that, you know, we can get away with getting in the race car, we're going to get in the race car. Um, and so by having this series of tests, that, you know, sort of tries to make sure you are fit to drive and you have to pass them if need be. It's this really good safeguard to try and almost protect us from ourselves, I guess. Um, from a broader point of view, I think that really understanding the risks and knowing what those risks are and then still making that personal choice that I want to do this, I think that's really important. So for me as a racing driver, I know when I get in a race car, you know, and I normally get to race on the ovals. So on the ovals, I'm racing at over 200 miles an hour, and you've got a concrete wall for your runoff on the right side, admittedly with a bit of safer barrier in front of it, but effectively a concrete wall. And you've got a concrete wall on your inside if it goes wrong in that direction. And so you add up the physics of this, and it's like, okay, if something goes wrong, the best possible scenario is I'm going to say, ouch, afterwards. <laughs> right. It, you know, but the worst possible scenario is much worse than that. But right. the best case scenario, if you get out of the car, you walk away, it's not big, it can be rebuilt, you, there's no, it still hurts when you hit the wall at that speed. But I want to race and I understand, I know, and I accept those risks and the possible consequences. So I think understanding what the risk 
really is and giving people the information that they are able to make that choice as to whether this is something they want to do and a risk they want to take. I think to me that that's the most important thing, acknowledging and understanding the risk and then allowing people to make the choice as to whether that's the risk they want to take. Yeah, I think that's a really good perspective because for me, it's the, we, we sometimes lose track of um, the, the, the dialogue is a lot of the, like you're right. The, a lot of these athletes will compete, um, but giving them the information and being honest and open about it seems like the best um, track so that they can evaluate everything. Yeah. And then I think having that network of support, if something does happen to someone or someone, you know, is struggling later on in life. Mm hmm. And a great example of that being, you know, you have racing drivers who have passed away or who have been seriously injured. And we don't in racing, you know, we don't shun them or their families and the series doesn't shun them or their families. You know, we, we try and remember them. Uh, we, we try and honor them. Um, and Sam Schmidt, one of the most successful team owners in the feeder series to IndyCar, Indy Lights, and now becoming a very successful team owner in the IndyCar series as well, he's actually paralyzed from an accident that happened to him when he was a driver and paralyzed from the neck down effectively. He doesn't even have any movement of his hands, but Sam is a regular presence in the paddock with his team. He's a big part of the team. He's a big part of the series. But nobody's trying to, you don't feel like anybody's trying to hide Sam right. because of the risks he faced. And maybe that's something that potentially other sports can kind of learn from that, you know, when somebody is suffering consequences of something that happened to them when they were playing, that is not something shameful. Mm -hmm. Instead, it's, you know, you remember them for how great they were and you try and be a part of what they're trying to do now. And if somebody's in difficulty, I mean, it stops being about sport and it stops being about trying to be decent human beings. Let's try and help them. That's just, that's a really interesting perspective on the debate and, and kind of one that I hadn't heard before. So I, we appreciate you sharing that. I, I think that's, that's really interesting to hear someone in your sport feeling like, let's just continue to put these people out in front and not pretend like it's not a problem. Another great example is um, Dario Franchitti, one of you know the most famous, best IndyCar drivers there has been. A few years ago, he suffered a career-ending accident at a street race in Houston. It wasn't a career-ending accident because of the injuries he suffered to his legs or to his back. It was a career-ending injury because he suffered a very big head impact. And in Dario's career, he had already had a previous sizable head impact. And the doctors got with Dario and, you know, they, they spoke to him and he spent a lot of time with them. And that was why Dario Franchitti retired. Dario is a really great example of someone who did have to retire because he got hurt. And it was a second major head injury, and with head injuries being in the limelight at the moment, and yet Dario is not someone whom the sport has tried to hide away. Um, you know, he, he's still there. He's still part of it. He's publicly involved, and I, I think that's really great. 
Yeah, no, that, that's fantastic. And this is a it's it's always tough to transition from the serious side of the talk around football and around sports with with injuries to you know back to the fun stuff. But to close the interview out, you know, one of the things that that we always do with with our guests is you know uh, athletes. Uh-oh. Uh, no, <laughs> a, a, athletes always. Yeah, that's right. Uh oh, <laughs> athletes always have to answer like go do these um, uh, aptitude tests like the Wonderlick. And NFL players have been famous for uh, taking these tests at the combine. So. We have our Just Not Sports Wonder Like, which is five questions about the thing you like. So I've got five questions about American football or hand egg, locked and loaded. And how do you think you're going to do? How many of the five do you think you'll get right? Uh, probably none, maybe one. <laughs> all right, well, we'll see. I don't know very much at all. I know just enough to be almost dangerous, but when you really delve into the facts, yeah. Well, we'll see. I, I, feel, I think you're at least a three, three out of five. But let, we'll, we'll here we go. Okay. So question one. What city did the Colts leave when they relocated to Indianapolis in 1984? Oh, um, maybe it was Baltimore. It was Baltimore. One for one. See, off to a good start. Off to a good start. <laughs> All right. So that was my one. <laughs> that's right. So this one's dedicated to your husband. So when Clemson players run downhill, uh, d- down the hill to the field before home games, they rub a special rock that supposedly gives them mystical powers. What is that rock's name? I have no idea what the name of the rock is, but I know where it is when they run down the hill. And I was hoping <laughs> you would, that you were going to ask me what they did on the way down to the... Maybe... Uh, no, I, I don't know what the name of the rock is. I'm sorry. Howard's Rock. Howard's Rock. Okay. Uh, that's right. Well, that's a tough one. So, they, yeah, they, they My just... My husband would be very upset. Question three is about Clemson again. Coach... Dabo, Sweeney, Dabo Sweeney's real first name is what? Absolutely no idea at all. <laughs> William. William Christopher Sweeney, okay. I believe, is his name. All right, so this one's easy. Wow, it would not have had a clue. This one's easy. Peyton Manning. Peyton Manning related. Did Peyton Manning, win his, uh, did Peyton Manning end his career with a winning or losing record in the NFL playoffs? Just the playoffs, not the regular season. One would assume winning. It is winning, yes. The Super Bowl actually brought him one game over 500 for his career, 14 to 13. All right. So wow. Two and two. I said you got three, so it's all coming down to this. Last year, <laughs> last year, the Colts started Matt Hasselbeck when Andrew Luck got hurt. How old is Matt Hasselbeck? Oh, it's a round number. Um, I'll give you a hint. It's a round number. 40. 40 is right. Three. There we go. Three out of five. Very good. <laughs> I knew it was somewhere around 40, but I couldn't remember if it was 39 or if it was 40. So the round number really helped. And how about this for a bonus? <laughs> what will the Colts record be this year? Hopefully they'll go all the way to the Super Bowl. And I'll leave it at that. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, you've been such a sport to talk to us. Can you tell us uh, before we go, you, you do such great work uh, with Susan G. Susan G. Komen, um, the, the, you know, the largest um, organization battling breast cancer. Can you just talk to us a little bit about what you guys are doing and, and some of the efforts that you're making to get people involved? Yeah, so it's, uh, it's actually really cool. With the help of my team owner, Dale Coyne, and his wife, Gail, for the past two years at the Indianapolis 500, we've actually effectively um, 
donated the side pods and the title sponsorship of the car I drive to Susan G. Komen. Mm-hmm. So that means we've painted the race car pink. We run Susan G. Komen on the side pods of the car. And we run the car out on track to help raise awareness um, at the biggest sporting event for our sport of the entire year. Yep. So it's pretty cool. And then alongside the pink racing car, as part of my personal partnership with Komen, I actually run a fundraising campaign, which we call the Get Involved campaign. And that normally kicks off around May the 1st. We use a crowdfunding site called Indiegogo to run it. And the idea is, is that people can log on to this campaign and they can donate an amount of money. But it's instead of it just being a donation to make you feel good, it's a donation where you get something in return. So maybe you would donate 20 bucks and just kind of get our supporter pack, which is, you know, a wristband, a koozie, a signed autograph card, a flashlight pen from our partners, Forever Gen Plus, membership to a travel site, um, Maybe you donate more money because you want a campaign poster. Um, Maybe you want to come race go-karts with me in Indianapolis. So there's all of these things that people can pick from. And one of the most special things we did last year, but again, we're trying to put together the program to run the pink car again this year. And we're hoping to repeat this this year on Indiegogo was um, we allowed people to donate $100 and then send us a name. And the name could be somebody fighting cancer, somebody who has beaten cancer, somebody who has passed away from cancer. It didn't have to be breast cancer specific, but we made the point that all the names would be in pink, even if it wasn't breast cancer specific. Just the name. They give us the name, and then we printed out these names onto uh, tiny little strips, and we turned the inside of the cockpit of my race car pink. So on race day at the Indianapolis 500, all of these people's names actually raced with me in the race and helped raise money for the fight against breast cancer. But that was a pretty cool thing to do. And that's something we're really hoping to repeat this year. Well, as someone who's lost you know, my father to cancer, I just think the work you're doing is fantastic. I encourage everybody to, to get involved. And you know, we, we thank you so much. We'll be following you this year. Uh, we'll be hoping you are sipping milk in victory lane after the, um, the 100th uh, running of the Indy. Uh, 500. And I, I just encourage all of our listeners to um, go follow you on Twitter at Pippaman. Uh, Pippaman.com is your website. And uh, thank you again for, for talking football with us. Thank you for having me on the show. Joining us now on the show is Jonathan Abrams. Jonathan is an award-winning journalist who has covered the NBA for the New York Times, the LA Times, and Grantland. His new book is called Boys Among Men, How the Prep-to-Pro Generation Redefined the NBA and Sparked a Basketball Revolution. It's a really great book. It's the story of the teenage phenoms who came to dominate the league, both with their play and also the unshakable allure of their potential. If you listen to sports podcasts, you've probably heard Jonathan by now. He's done a lot of my favorite shows. So today we're going to talk a little bit about the book, but also some of the different nuances about the players he profiles in the book, from their aspirations to become brands to how some of them found purpose beyond basketball after their careers were over. So, Jonathan, thank you so much for being here. How are you? Good. Thanks for having me on. So I've heard you on Bill Simmons. I know you did Jonah Carey, friend of our show. I know you did Zach Lowe. At this point, coming on Just Not Sports after that 
that lineup has to feel like being drafted number three overall and winding up in the D league like six months later, man. I'm really sorry about that. <laughs> no, nah, man. If you if you have a podcast, I'm on it. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not saying no these days. <laughs> well, you you've been great, man. I I gotta applaud you. You've been um, in every one of the the shows I've listened to, you, and I, I feel like we're we're old friends because I've heard you talk for like a collective like seven hours over the past three weeks, right in my ears. Um, I feel like you bring something different. There's so much in this book. I had a chance to read it. Um, there's so many interesting stories and anecdotes. In the process of, um, you know, I work in sports PR, so I'm very familiar with like the press junket, if you will. Um, have you been amazed at like how much material there is as you get into talking about it and find yourself kind of mining new territories interview to interview? Uh, not really for the purposes of this book. I mean, I knew that this was going to be a huge fill. I think the problem that I had is I tend to over report things and <laughs> I just had to whittle, whittle everything down to, to try and make the best narrative. So, I mean, some guys aren't in the book a lot who you think would should probably be in there more. And some guys weren't. I just tried hard not to be redundant. So I heard you tell the story about Chuck Klosterman um, kind of giving you some advice for um, what topic to pick when you're writing the book. Would you mind recounting um, that to us? I think it's really interesting for any potential readers out there and how they how they kind of gravitate toward a specific project. Yeah, so Chuck is, of course, a genius writer, and he has lots and lots of good books out, and he always seems to come up with topics that are like, man, I wish I could have thought of that. You know, he's one of those type of guys you're always jealous of if you're a writer. <laughs> yeah. So uh, I I asked Chuck um, how he comes up with the process of identifying what a book subject should be, because I knew that I always wanted to write a book at some point in my career. And Chuck gave me this advice. He said that you just walk into a Barnes & Noble or a bookstore and you just look at the aisles and look at the books and look at the titles and look at the subjects. And the book that you can imagine there but you don't see it is the book that you need to write because you know that that's the book that you're going to be passionate about. Did you get close to any other angles before you committed to this particular one? Uh, no, I didn't. Um, this one really spoke to me because I was a high school senior in 2001 and it was almost at the height of this. And I was always an NBA fan. So it was interesting for me to see at that time, my peers going straight from high school to the NBA because I knew at that time I wasn't even ready for college yet. So I was, I graduated from high school in 97 and I so vividly remember watching SportsCenter when Kobe announced in front of like a pre, one of those press conferences at the high school gym when he announced that he's going pro. And I remember looking at him and just thinking, this kid's not going to make it. And then here we are like in the year long Kobe farewell tour where everyone just can't believe he's out of the league. Can you talk a little bit about the, um, the, the, the culture of skepticism that surrounded some of these guys? I mean, I think there were a lot of great stories in your book about GMs who really wanted to, to take a leap on a Kevin Garnett or a Kobe Bryant, but just for whatever reason, couldn't pull the trigger. What, what, what fueled that skepticism um, where they were clearly seeing these guys at big camps performing against top players, but why couldn't they pull the trigger? Yeah, I think the NBA is a, all sports are, are copycat leagues where if one organization is successful in a way that uh, teams haven't been traditionally successful at, they're going to mimic it and copy it. So it was that way with not taking high school players, and then it was that way with taking high school players. I think the greatest example of that is one that I set up 
a couple times, and I said, and the book is that the, the Washington Bullets had a chance to take Kevin Garnett with the fourth pick in 1995, but instead they didn't draft him simply off of the fact that he was a high school player and they didn't want to kind of take on that burden. Well, six years later, they take Kwame Brown with the first overall pick. So that was <laughs> right. how far the league had had come and jumped. And when when Kobe when Kobe jumped to the NBA, Marty Blake, who was hired by the NBA to kind of rank and scout all these different players and and be like the forefront uh, expert on these guys on underclassmen and pro prospects, said that the, he said something along the lines of these guys are getting bad advice. I would love to be a Hollywood actor, but that's just a dream. And this is a dream for a lot of these guys. I'm paraphrasing, but that's what he said about Kobe Bryant at the time. Well, and there was a lot around Kobe too. I think he took Brandy to his prom. Um, He was, I think he was the first guy who of this generation. Now now that's not saying a ton because Garnett came before him. He was kind of number two in the, in the new modern era of prep to pro. But he seemed very comfortable with his stardom from the beginning. Um, is that did that? Do you think that rubbed people the wrong way in the league who maybe thought that was a, a sign of uh, him being just not, you know, maybe I guess too full of himself? Or do you think that that's what drew that drew them to him was his confidence and and that aura around him? Well, I mean, I think there's a couple guys who jumped from high school to the NBA who were just complete outliers, Kobe being among them, because there's really no other player like him who had the same type of background growing up. Um, This is a guy who grew up for the most part in Italy and learned the game from his dad over there and from watching uh, video cassettes of the NBA. And when he came back here, he, he goes to high school and he's playing against NBA players like Jerry Stackhouse during the summer when he's still in high school. So by that time, he had already been able to measure himself up against NBA competition. And he, I'm pretty sure he had a pretty good indication of how, how good he was. One of my favorite stories that I reported on in the book is that when Kobe was a rookie, it was the same summer that they landed Shaquille O'Neal. And Shaquille O'Neal, at that time, obviously, the probably the premier force in the NBA and just uh, just reaching the prime of his career. And Kobe it was just turned 18 years old and is telling uh, Dell Harris and the Lakers coach that <laughs> right. he should clear Shaquille out of the paint so Kobe can try. <laughs> I remember that anecdote. And Dell just looking at him like, you don't beat enough guys consistently enough for me to do that right now. Uh, yeah, and they, and they had just, uh, I mean, what was Shaquille's contract? It was like one of the first... <laughs> Hundred million dollar contract that right. they just brought him into LA for. Um, you mentioned Shaq. I think it's important to put these guys in the right context um, uh, against the time. So Michael and Shaq, especially, are two guys who had had created a blueprint for becoming a global icon, a global brand. You know, both guys had started movies. Shaq had the rap albums. And I, when I look back at that era, and on this show we talk a lot about athletes off, off the field, off the court. Um, when I look back at that era, I think of it as an era when a lot of athletes were were becoming very cognizant of their personal brands. And some of these guys have have not only not only gone on to great careers with their you know with you know on the court, but you know they they've dabbled in other things. Kobe, you know, beyond the rap album and stuff like that, you know. I think he's very much a businessman. Um, LeBron James very much, uh, you know, starting to become a, a an athletic 
um, influencer, like a, a businessman, like signing other, you know, his agencies are, you know, is signing other talent. I'm just curious, like how this generation of players, do you think, how are they influenced by what they'd seen from Michael and Shaq and that, that slightly older generation? And how have they, they gone on to do so much more beyond their sport? Yeah, I think uh, even a guy like Magic Johnson mm-hmm. is probably the one of the biggest influences on guys and how they're looking at their career, not just at the present, but 10, 20, 30 years down the road on how they want their lives to be. And I think NBA players as a whole um, in this modern age are, are a lot smarter about thinking about uh, the future. There's not going to be as many stories like Antoine Walker players just burning through money because now athletes have teams and agents and people all around them. And their personal brand is uh, almost uh, what's utmost importance to them (laughs) almost as much as what they actually do on the court. I mean, to me, the transition has been so interesting because Russell Westbrook obviously isn't a prep to pro guy, but he's, he's, uh, pairs with a lot of those players and, you know, the, the, the fashion rule, came down about wearing business suits or a jacket pretty much after the 2004 uh, Pistons Pacers fight Mm -hmm. to kind of shore up the league's image. And it's been amazing to me to almost see how in the time since the players uh, Westbrook kind of headlining it have have used it to kind of flip it and build their brands about around their dress and, and how they, how they just, they're walking the arenas. I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing to me to sit back and watch and see that happening. Well, Amari Stoudemire, another player you profile in the book, he's got his own fashion line. I mean, these are guys who have entire industries they're building around themselves, even when they're in, you know, still playing. And I, and I, I'm curious from your perspective, how do you think the, why do you think the media greets that sometimes favorably and sometimes skeptically? Because of the guys you profile, I think people look at Kobe or Amari kind of dabbling in other stuff. Um, other than Kobe's rap album, which was kind of panned universally. Um, and, and they, but they look at them doing this and they say, oh, these are guys are savvy businessmen. But then a guy like Dwight Howard has always been criticized, I think, for, you know, by people saying, well, he's just very brand conscious and he's very, he's always thinking about, you know, life off the court and stuff like that. Like, where does that, why do you think that conversation is, so, is somewhat inconsistent guy to guy? Just on a detour, you got me thinking. One of my favorite Grantland stories of all time was, I forgot who even wrote it, but it was it was a, a feature story on Kobe's rap career, and I yes. just thought it was amazing <laughs> because it was like a like a section of Kobe's life that people just forget about now. Um, but I think I think it's people are looking for authenticness in, in whatever regards they can find it. I think one of the reasons why Michael Jordan's legacy has continued on is because people saw a person they wanted to be like, and they felt like they could mimic on the court. You can't really do that with a guy like Dwight Howard or, uh, you know, a few other guys come to mind, but, you know, Michael was, was easy to kind of mimic. He, he wasn't the tallest guy on the court. He wasn't the biggest or the strongest, but he was the guy who just got it done. You, okay. You mentioned Kobe's rap career. We had Shea Serrano on, a few weeks ago, and Shay said unequivocally. I mean, you you know Shay very well. Um, uh, you know he's clearly the the authority in all things rap and hip hop, in my opinion. He said Kobe was the worst athlete rapper ever. <laughs> I'm just curious, what's your what's your take on that? Do you have a, do you have a hot take back, or is that is it too hard to go against Shay on that? Uh, I remember. 
I remember Jason Kidd was on a rap song. <laughs> what the kid uh, did. What the kid did. <laughs> yeah, what, what the kid did. Uh, they, uh, I think that could give Kobe a run for his money. <laughs> Cedric Sabalos also uh, not on the on the list of great Lakers rappers. Um, <clears throat> transitioning here, th- the thing that makes this book so special to me is not just the great anecdotes, and you have a ton of really great insider anecdotes about you know, the draft rooms, evaluating the high school players. And, um, you know, you already mentioned, you know, uh, Kobe asking for preference as a rookie over Shaq, that kind of stuff. But what I love about what you've done is you profiled a lot of the players who maybe their path wasn't as clear cut as, you know, they made the jump and now they're headed to the Hall of Fame. Can you talk a little bit about meeting some of these guys um, and and how they have sort of greeted their purpose their, their quest to find a purpose beyond basketball now that their careers have, have ended and, and they didn't necessarily reach the, the quote, and I, I say quote very intentionally, potential that the media thrust upon them, um, you know, those types of expectations. Yeah, I, I think it's a really hard burden to live with. Um, guys like LeBron and Kobe and KG are still in the league and really these guys Cares at one point of their lives where they were looked and forecasted upon to have the same type of success. And when that success doesn't come and you're, every time you hear your name, you're associated as a bust and you come to the realization that you peak probably when you're 18, 19 years old and you're never going to have that stardom or, or millions. I think that's tough to, tough to deal with. And I think it has been tough to deal with for, for some of these guys who, who didn't meet those expectations. Um, it's almost like they're in kind of a suspended adulthood because they kind of st- skip some steps in maturation that, that others have gone through. Um, you skip out on college and you, you try to just go straight to the pros and you don't meet the success. So you don't really know how to, how to handle being denied because in high school you were the star and you were forecasted to, to just keep ascending, ascending, ascending. So to mm-hmm. hit that roadblock so early in life is, it's difficult. And I would say that, that some of the guys are still struggling to, to really bounce back from that. Were those com- conversations with them hard to have? W- was going into that world um, <clears throat> difficult or, or was it something, I mean, you as you're a reporter, so you'll, you go where the story is, but I guess how difficult was it to be talking to these guys and, and how open and introspective were they about where they were and finding a direction once their careers ended? It, it all depended on the the person. Mm-hmm. Um, some people are still kind of, I would say, bitter about the whole process and felt like they were taken advantage of throughout their young lives. And it's kind of like, you know, I had all these people around me then. Where are they now? Uh, you know, some of them were open and willing. Some of them not so much. Some of them I couldn't even track down or get in touch with. Um, so I, I would say it ran the spectrum and. You know, I, I am a reporter, and to me, the the stories that make that made the book to me were not the ones on Kobe or, or KG, but on the guys who in the basketball kind of kind of left behind. And yeah, I, I would say that I like I said, I am a reporter, but I don't think you're you're human if you don't kind of right. you know feel emotional about it a little bit yourself. Yeah, and you know, we've had guys on the show like Jay Williams who've talked very openly about 
his battle with depression after his career was was over. Um, so it's a, it's a topic we talk about a lot on this show. I was also intrigued by some of the guys in the book that we would associate as being busts, like whether it's Kwame Brown or or um, some of the other players who were drafted very high. But some of those guys had, you know, Eddie Curry. I mean, they had long careers. They made tens of millions of dollars. How do they look back at their career? And um, do they do we overrate sometimes how they should be feeling negatively about it when they might say, look, I was one of the most one, you know, one of the top 1% in terms of success stories in American history. Leave me alone. Yeah. And that's the way that, you know, I, I try to bring that up in the book and looking at it from a different type of prison. Say if, if Kwame had gone to Florida for one year, then he gets exposed a little bit. And the next year he's taking the late lottery in the draft and, you know, he has the same career where he plays a dozen years, he's never a star, but he's kind of fortifies the NBA front line. I think we look at his career a, a whole lot differently than had he been picked number one and the hand picked by, by Michael Jordan. So I think it's just all how you look at it. And, you know, I think those guys are pretty satisfied with how their careers ended because uh, the whole point is to make a living while you can make a living and and get this contract while you can. And they were able to do it. So you know, you've given us a lot of time on this. I know you've you've talked about the book on um, so many shows. I encourage our listeners to listen to all of them because uh, I loved every interview that you've done. You, there's always something new coming up. I got to close with this, LeBron. How many Oscars does he win before he quits playing? <laughs> How many Oscars? <laughs> yeah, it's a train wreck, man. He was he was he was the breakout star. You know what? I was I went in a train wreck with high expectations. I don't know how much I liked that movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we we debated it. But LeBron did do pretty well in it. He was okay. We we always talk about I have I have a little bit higher regard for Shaq going out there and, and doing Kazam and really like put it all on the line as like a genie or a superhero in steel. LeBron just has to do like kind of be himself and, and kind of read a few funny lines and he gets credit for being this crazy actor. But I, I always go bigger for, I, I, we kind of like John Cena's performance even more cause it was a little bit more outlandish, but Hey, yeah. LeBron's just wading into the waters, man. In a couple of years, uh, that'll, you know, he'll have a spinoff. It'll be great. I'm waiting on Space Jam 2 like everybody else. <laughs> Who would you cast? Who would you cast in Space Jam 2? Oh, man, we've got to have uh, KD in it. Uh, I'd like to see Russell just to see what he would wear. Uh, <laughs> How about the, the prep maybe, to pro? Maybe. What, what about the guys you profiled? Who would be the star yeah. in that movie from your book? Maybe they have to bring Kobe back from retirement. <laughs> <laughs> I like that, man. I like that. We'll pair him with Michael, too. Well, anyway, the, the the book is fantastic. It's Boys Among Men. It's available Amazon, iTunes, bookstores, wherever you can get a hold of it. People should follow you on Twitter, JPD Abrams. Yeah. Okay. It. Great. And uh, thank you again for joining the show. And uh, go, uh, congrats on the book and best of luck. All right, I appreciate it. Today's show is sponsored by the Weatherneck. We spend a lot of time around athletes and super active people, and two things really stand out to us. They love staying active outdoors all year round, and they need quality equipment to do that. Enter the Weatherneck. The Weatherneck is a modern take on the bandana that's quick, quiet, clean, and comfortable, and it's designed specifically for performance outdoors. 
It features high-tech fabrics and powerful magnets that make it today's outdoor bandana, and it's comfortable. The center mesh section allows for full breath when active outdoors, and the wicking fabrics eliminate the nasty soaking wetness that can bunch up in fleeces. Everyone knows what it's like to put on like a knit scarf, try to be on a bike out in the cold. It's just awful. Your face gets super wet. And it's super convenient. It removes in one second with one hand. That's amazingly helpful if you're on the bike, on the run, or just outdoors doing your thing. I know the guys who created this. They are super smart, super passionate, the types of people I would trust. Go to theweatherneck.com for more information or to place an order, theweatherneck.com. That is our show. For this week and if you didn't like it in the words of malcolm jenkins eagle safety the beauty is in the imperfection just like a bow tie thank you to everyone listening all of the beautiful unique sparkle ponies subscribe rate and review us on itunes get other people to do it you just might still get a t-shirt from adam follow us on twitter at just not sports email us tips thoughts or topics just not sports at gmail.com let's end with some shout outs i'm gonna shout out pippa man the amazing race car driver, really great interview with her about her NFL fandom, her college football fandom, terminology like hand egg, which is, I think, the new way to describe football on Just Not Sports from here on out. Really enjoyed working with her. Would love her work in the fight against breast cancer, and you should definitely go check out her site, pippaman.com, to learn more. Also going to give a shout-out to Jonathan Abrams, who took time away from a very busy writing and book publication tour to talk to you know, us, about uh, topics in his book and beyond. So thank you for coming on the show. And Adam, got any shout-outs, buddy? Yeah, I know, uh, Brad, you think I'm overly excited about these T-shirts, but I am a huge I, – I have way too many T-shirts. So I wanted to give a shout-out to Strange Cargo. They did a great job. They literally had our order ready three days. Um, so Strange Cargo in Wrigleyville, big shout out for getting our t-shirts done. Uh, I'm just really excited about t-shirts, Brad. Where's my t-shirt? Uh, I, I have it. It's, uh, it's literally at my desk. I need to get it to you. So let's, uh, hook up this week. Let's do it. Any other shout outs, Adam? Um, no. Oh, oh, okay. Booty, booty, booty rappers. Booty rappers, say booty. Yeah,